Hi, and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, David Bentham, VP of Global Sales Development at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Redefining Outbound. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of um, Ashley Early um, joining me. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody listening in? Yeah, hi. So thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Um, As you mentioned, my name is Ashley Early. I am the CEO of Other Side of Sales Consulting, as well as one of the co-founders and co-hosts of Across the Pond and Over the Rainbow, the chaotic revenue marketing show that no one ever asked for that runs every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on LinkedIn with my co-host, Evan Patterson. Super, super cool. Um, I know Evan, um, he's all over LinkedIn. I can't recommend his uh, content enough. So you two as a, as a duo um, must be um, a must watch for sure. It's um, chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so Ashley, um, the way that we always start this is um, just by asking the really simple uh, question. What does redefining outbound mean to you? Redefining outbound to me basically means abandoning the practices that no longer serve us and adopting ones that are going to take ourselves and our clients into the future. So especially in the past, I'd say 18 months, what I'm seeing with my clients, both from an advising and a coaching and a training standpoint, is really embracing AI to automate the parts of the process that don't need to be done by humans that can't absolutely be done by robots, building persona card persona cards, um, helping build out kind of more personalized scripting, getting V1s of hyper-personalized emails, doing research, stuff like that, so that sales can focus exclusively on building relationships. And that's what outbounding is. It's building relationships at scale efficiently. Cool. Makes total sense. I'd love to dive into that more, um, naturally. What... what um, <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, look, I've got some really interesting views on AI myself and into in the world of sales development. Um, I, I, but I do want to kind of, yeah. What, like, where do you think it fits in, and where do you think it doesn't? It, it will never replace SDRs. Sorry, I'll, I'll die on that hill. It won't. It won't. Um, because, and I'm I'm a huge sci-fi nerd, right? So I've been thinking about AI and Turing tests and the difference between machine learning versus AI, and a lot of it's still machine learning. Um, literally since I was like 12, computers cannot replace humans when it comes to replicating human connection. And as much as we like to talk about technology and product and, um, product driven sales and product driven marketing and product driven growth, people still buy from people and people still are more likely to build long-term lasting relationships with brands that they have a positive human relationship with, right? So humans aren't going anywhere. So things that can go away, um, updating the CRM, getting V1s of emails that used to require us 30 30 to 45 minutes to write. Maybe we can cut that down to 15 minutes to get to the same level of quality. Um, Generating prompts and interesting ideas, helping hack the creative process. Stuff like that, absolutely, we can start leaning on AI to do. But again, that's offloading the things that aren't about that direct human connection, but allow us to spend more time on that. It's going to make a big, big difference. And I think it's going to look slightly different for everybody too, for every sales process and for every salesperson as an individual. Someone who's 
great at writing really good hyper-personalized emails won't need as AI as much as someone like me who gets writer's block. I can do it, but it takes me a bit. And especially once I get into a group, AI is great, been really helpful to me personally in kind of jumpstarting that process and allowing me to do more in less time while maintaining the same level of quality. Awesome. I love that. And, and what do you think of this, is the biggest challenge then for sales leaders in this AI area, era and just generally in 2023? Honestly, I think especially in 2023, the biggest challenge for sales leaders is finding the signal in the noise. What I mean by that is there is so much noise around AI and how to use it and who's using what and which tools it's embedded in and how to get it all working together. It can get real chaotic real quick. Um, so figuring out what in all of that noise is actually helpful to your reps and solving the problems that you have with your pipeline right now, that's hard. Um, largely because you're already oversubscribed as a sales leader, you're already busy, you already have a million challenges and taking the time to figure that out is something I don't think a lot of people are going to have the time to do properly. And so they're going to make assumptions, they're going to guess, and they're going to guess wrong. So, and then you go, oh, it's not working. Oh, AI doesn't work. Maybe you didn't do it right. <laughs> so we Fair saw enough. this a lot with like early databases and dialers and stuff like that. People like, oh, dialers don't work. Maybe because you were not doing them properly. Oh, mass emailing doesn't work. Well, yeah, because you were spamming. There's a difference. So it's all about taking the time to learn how to use the tools properly versus just mm. following a hashtag. Okay. Do you know what? I, it's really interesting you've said that as well, because I get caught, I get spoken to all the time and asked about dialers. Yeah. Like, where do you see, I'm, I'm literally going completely off our script here, uh, but where do you see, yeah. so this is all for my own research, where do you see dialers working? Because I'll uh, be honest with you, Ashley, I have not had success with dialers. I, it, okay. I love dialers. I, but I love them for very specific use cases, right? And really what it comes to- And we're to talking, that, sorry, just to interject here yeah. for the, to make sure we're, we're like uh, getting the right context here. What, like auto dialers we're talking about here, right? So we can- Not so just dialers in general. Yeah, so there's a couple different things here. We're not talking about what I would consider click to call, which is like, oh, I want to call, I'm going to call Ashley, click on the phone number, click on Ashley's phone number in the CRM, it calls Ashley. That's not what I'm talking. What I'm talking about is either where things are preloaded lists that just automatically calls the next person in the thing, boom, 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 boom. And if no one picks up, it auto logs a call. I think that just saves the rep time. I have no issue with that. Um, so what I would consider a power dialer or a parallel dialer, well, they'll dial two to three people at once and kind of work through lists a lot faster, which can then result in more conversations per hour, do a lot of stuff like that. But it's a trickier skill, especially for cold callers, because then you have, it's not as great as a client experience because there's a couple second delay between someone saying hello and you responding. And as a rep, you have literally under three seconds to get all the information you need to start talking. So it is tricky. Now, my sailor, I've had a lot of success with them in the past. I've used them at several companies. However, I do not recommend them for a lot of the companies I currently work with because they do not have the data quality that is necessary to take full advantage of those power dialers. So what it really comes down to is power dialers work when you've got a really good quality list. And I define a good quality list as not just accurate info, but people that have been warmed up. 
So for example, people who you've called them already, you know the phone number's good, maybe you've left a message and sent a couple emails and you're following up. That's a great situation for a power dialer because you're not wasting your time calling anyone you don't want to call. And if they pick up, you know you want to talk to them. Power dialers, there's a case to be made. I think there's ways to do it that are more cost effective to do it, to use power dialers to actually scrub a list where you get a list of 2,000 people who are questionable quality and you just dial through them. Bluntly, I've never seen that really make a lot of cost effective sense. I think you can do most of that with email and it doesn't cost nearly as much. Um, but at the same time, only typically the best callers are going to be capable of making those calls work. So you cannot give that to someone who is six months into their first SDR job and expect them to be able to quickly look at first name, last name, title, company name, know the company's industry, and be able to pull a tailored pitch out. That takes a year or two of experience to get good at. I didn't get good at it until I'd been an SDR for about two to three years. Um, and it took some time from there. And I trained people on this a lot. And I found it, I, I tried training people on it early. And I found now you really couldn't give someone the power dialer until they were at least six to nine months in. And even then, I would say probably it was 50-50 of people on my team that really had, there's a certain amount of aptitude you have to have for it. Um, really interesting. Yeah. And, and um, you said there, like, so f so for you, because I suppose, like, where I've felt um, power dialers don't work is always in that um, it, you, it's almost impossible for the SDR to, ha like, bring any personalization to their call. Um, and you mentioned there that you think it's fine when, like, you know, you know, based on job title, industry, etc. How how do you not fall into the trap as a as a as an SDR team that you end up just with that classic pitch of, "Hello, I can see that you're the you know your name is David Bentham and you're the sales development leader at X, right?" And and yeah. it's a remaining generic. Well, a couple of things there. One, um, as I mentioned, where I like using it the best is when I've already made contact a couple times. So the first I'm going to say is, hey, it's Ashley Early calling with, you know, other side of sales, LLC. I've dropped you a couple messages and left you a voicemail. I don't want to be a creepy stalker. Just really quickly, have those hit spam or have you seen them? So I just start by saying, have you seen my contacts? 90% of the time, they'll say, no, I'm really busy. Got it. Completely understand. Want to be respectful of your time. I'm calling regarding and I'll ask kind of a quick yes, no question just to verify whether or not there's a business opportunity here. So that might mean, for example, if I'm selling a sales tool and that sales tool has to integrate with Salesforce, the first question I might ask is, hey, if you don't mind my asking really quickly, just to be respectful of your time, which level of Salesforce do you currently have? Right. Most people are gonna answer that. It's pretty quick, it's pretty easy, not a big deal. It's not privileged information. And then going off of there, we keep spinning. Now that said, I do think there is a bit of an obsession with personalization in the market that is counterintuitive. So personalizing every single call reduces volume to a point that I'm not certain is really effective. Targeting a call, apps and emails are the same thing, can make get you 90% of the results with 30, with you know, 50-ish percent of the work. So you mentioned earlier kind of that classic standardized thing, but I see you're this title at this company. Great, show your research, show you understand that persona 
So, hey, I see you're an SDR manager at this company. How are you effectively measuring the quantity versus quality of your team's call volume? Right? That shows I understand this person in their role. So you have to ask a question that immediately shows you know who they are and what they're doing, even though it's not technically specific to them. If you also do your research well in advance, every power dial will give the option to display what fields you have. So if I did research in advance, I can also have the, the you know, a couple words of research um, that I can put, that I can also bring up. Hey, I sent you an email regarding this post you put up on the 5th around this. I can get that from LI, November 5th, this topic. So you can also do that quickly as well. So it's, it's all Very about cool. kind of that balance thing. And that's why it takes, that's why I say don't put new, don't put new SDRs on dialers. They don't know how to find that balance. Veteran ones do typically still need some, still need some work. They still need to try it out and figure it out. But yeah, upfront it's, it's really hard and it is really easy to get lazy. It's really easy to get, okay, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to play with my phone. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I remember I was on a dialer. Gosh, this is Oh, that was a long time ago. I'm not going to say what year that was, but I was on a dialer. I got lazy. I was playing a game on my phone and it led to me um, when someone finally answered instead of my company name, I said, oh, hi, it's Ashley Early calling with zombie because shooting zombies on my phone. So I got lazy and I got smacked for it. The other person had a good laugh, but like it was, it was a less than ideal situation too. So it also has to be a level of ownership and professionalism that yes, I'm getting this tool, but I have to use it responsibly too. I had a similar story, uh, although it was a similar story once that I heard of um, an STL that was swiping on Tinder and said, hi, I'm X from um, calling from Tinder. So uh, oh, yeah, I, think you're, I think you've got away with the zombie one. Um, Ashley, uh, moving on to, to something. So I was looking um, through some of the stuff that you, you've been working on and, and shared uh, very kindly on, on LinkedIn. Um, and one thing you, you talked about is the art of asking um, better questions, the way to improve leadership skills. Just was wondering if you could expand on that at all, like whether we could dive into it and, and kind of, you know, what, what was the prompt for you thinking about that in the first place, but also, or was there a prompt? Um, and uh, just anything that you can share? Yeah, it's, I mean, we talk about asking questions a lot in the context of cold calling and outbounding and building pipeline. And all that's still true and important. But I don't think a lot of leaders take the time to really ask good questions in one-on-ones or in team meetings. So you're on a discovery call and someone mentions they're having pain around a specific step in their process, right? As a salesperson, you know you need to go a couple levels deep in that pain to really understand where it's coming from, how big the pain actually is. Is this an annoyance or is this a real, like something that needs emergency surgery? All those other things, we know how to do that. However, in a lot of one-on-ones, when a rep comes to you as a manager and says, hey, I'm having, I'm struggling with time management, I'm struggling with my conversion rate, I'm struggling with this, as managers, we jump straight to, okay, we'll just do this instead. Instead of actually asking questions to understand, okay, well, where is that coming from? What are you currently doing? What have you tried? What have you thought about trying? Let's figure this out together. Um, and that's something I see come up a lot is managers jumping straight to let's fix it. Um, so that's really important, but also I find it really interesting, especially in kind of the modern sales world, we're getting smarter about creating healthy workplaces. This is one of the reasons I'm doing a lot of work with Work Life, which is a great um, recognition and rewards platform in the US 
that's trying to build better, healthy workplaces. And they're really working to try and drive these healthy conversations that keep people not only motivated and engaged, but also really help managers better understand what's driving their team. So like I'm laughing, I always laugh really hard. I've got, I tell the story a lot of, I worked at a company once and the CEO wanted to, or sorry, the VP of sales wanted to do give away a snowboard as a prize. Um, we lived in San Francisco. We were three hours from the slopes. The only people that ever went skiing were people whose parents had houses up in Tahoe. Um, it was really expensive and it was a nice snowboard. But then this, the VP just could not understand why the team wasn't getting excited about the snowboard. Like, well, one, a lot of them live with roommates. They're in tiny shoebox apartments. Oh, well, they can sell it. Well, yeah, they still have to take it home and deal with it and deal with selling it. And why can't we just give them cash or do something else they really care about? If that VP had asked questions about, okay, hey, what do you guys actually care about? What do you actually want? What would be really helpful? We could have talked about tooling that was needed. We could have talked about training that was needed. We could have talked about other ways to show that people are valued aside from just throwing some cash. Everybody loves making it rain, but that's kind of the equivalent of just buying a bunch of pizzas and being like, look, culture. No, doesn't work like that. You can't make it rain and expect people to climb the mountains you expect them to climb. You have to show them, you see them and you value them. And the only way you're gonna do that is by asking really good questions. Makes total sense. How do you avoid um, as a leader, like? Where's the balance for you in terms of too many cooks versus making sure that everybody feels included on decisions? Aha. Oh, oh, that's a fun one. Um, so this is the thing. It's as a leader, you have to make the decisions. So you can say, I'm looking for everybody's input, but the decision is ultimately mine. So one of the things I know for me as a leader, it took me the longest to get was to, was to surrender the idea of consensus. I want consensus you're not going to get it. Um, uh, the best the best illustration of this, I think, is comp plans, right? There is no such thing as a perfectly fair comp plan. There's no such thing. <laughs> we can get it as close as possible. We can really try, but it will never be perfect. There will always be someone who it's slightly in their favor and someone who it's slightly not in their favor. The goal is to minimize that as much as possible, right? But whenever you roll out that comp plan change, you made that choice you have to own it. And the best way to get people to move on and to work through the consequences of that, which might be people, might be people leaving, that's okay. Companies change, people evolve, that's fine. We want people to go where they're going to be okay. If this role is no longer serving them, you don't want them on the team, that's fine. You can find other people. It's not that everyone's replaceable, but it's that you have to believe and act in the best interest of everyone on their team. And that does not mean them staying with you forever. So that's part of it. Um, as for getting, so then it's sacrificing consensus. So it's like, look, here's the thing, here's the plan. I know not everyone's gonna like this. Some people will, some people won't, and that's okay. Now, the other side of this too, is I, I do some work with a company called Numa in France on kind of general leadership training. And one of the things they talk a lot about in their trainings is this idea of involving all parties to co-create the change. So like announcing, hey, we're considering this change. Who has opinions on this? We would love to take them into consideration. Not, oh, I'm going to give it to you, but setting that boundary early of, hey, the decision's mine, but I would love your input. 
what a lot of managers fail to do is to maintain that and to regularly say, the decision is mine, but I want your input. They just go, yeah, give me your input. And then people think, oh, well, I gave you my input and you ignored it, which demotivates them, makes them think they don't have any control versus if you're just clear about, I'm going to make the decision, I'm going to make the decision using as much input as possible, which means you don't necessarily have all the information, but I'm going to do everything I can to get all the information. And I might make a decision that you don't agree with. But if they see you getting that and trying there, there's a trust that builds that does tend to work out for the great, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, very utilitarian. But you need that transparency of, I want your opinion, but I'm going to make the call. If you're clear about that, that tends to solve, I think, a lot of the problems. Utilitarianism is from my namesakes, Jeremy Bentham, so mm-hmm. I'm very aware of them. Um um, thank you for that, and, and like really insightful. The I suppose it leads me on to my next question, which is again something that I picked up from um, your uh, your LinkedIn. It's all around a debate that you're creating again on leadership, and that is um, the debate on where SDR should sit, whether they should sit within marketing orgs and sales orgs. So, would love to dive in um, and into your view on that. Yeah, and I'll say I actually um, credit where credit's due. So we had this was an episode of Across the Pond Over the Rainbow that Evan and I did back in late October. Um, And Chris Giacconi, who is brilliant, and I've been very impressed with him and his content lately. um, But he actually said something I think was rather brilliant, which is he rather than doing what I used to say, which is SDR should sit under whichever department can properly support them. So that's pretty simple. Most of the time, I will be honest, that is probably marketing. That said, I do think by the time an SDR team gets to 15, 20 people or crosses multiple continents, they probably should be their own department that sits in parallel with marketing and sales. They need a seat at the table that is equal. That's my opinion. Chris had a really good point there where he said it's less about which which department has the time and more about the phase of company growth. So when you're starting out, no one knows who your company is. Your SDR, BDR, MDR, whatever team is a huge source of marketing and brand awareness. So they should sit with marketing who can train them to do that brand awareness alongside the pipeline building they're naturally doing as a part of their job description. Once the brand becomes known, the company gets a little bit bigger. If you're not going to give them their own department, they should then sit under sales because then their primary focus is driving that sales pipeline and integrating into the sales process. So working more directly with the AEs, doing targeted account selling, stuff like that makes it make more sense for them to sit under sales. And I love the way Chris described that way of thinking. I think that's probably right if you can't go with the preferred option, which is letting the SDRs be their own department. There should be more VPs of SDRs um, and stuff like that. that are literally sitting as peers to VPs of sales and VPs of marketing because that's how you get. I like to think the SDR should not be the redheaded stepchild of the org that everyone just points a finger at and says, oh, it's their fault. They should be a peer at the table who's acting as a referee between the two departments and can hold everyone accountable. But they can only do that when they're given a proper seat at the table, which is unfortunately still rather rare. But we'll get there Interesting. Eventually. We're getting there. Um, interesting that you say that you typically would see marketing as the place that would support the SDRs better. Like, what the, I think that bucks the trend from what I, I've generally seen from other people and heard. Why, why is that your, your initial feeling? 
I, I think it comes down to comp structure more than anything else. And ironically enough, not for the SDRs, for the leaders themselves. A lot of times the heads of marketing, their comp structure is tied to overall company performance, stuff like that, but they use a lot of MBOs that they can then design for strategy. Heads of sales are designed for revenue, 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 revenue. <laughs> so that means that the SDRs, if they run to sales, focus on exclusively that, sometimes to the detriment of long-term strategy. And this is how you end up with SDRs who have like dialers and they're just burning through people and using very generic pitches and doing things like that because they've got a VP who's telling them, we just need to generate revenue, so we're going to do it through whatever way we can, and they get desperate. Marketing doesn't do that as much. They're more, okay, let's get strategy focused, and then we trust we'll get there in the long term. Um, I think it also comes down to, bluntly, and this is not true in every case, but I think it's a little more true, um, and I hope this will change in the next 15, 20 years. But I think a lot of the heads of sales right now, especially if they've been in the industry for 15, 20 years, when they were an SDR, they still expect SDRs today to behave the way that SDRs did 15, 20 years ago, which was get on the phone, war dial. I mean, I remember my first day in sales, I was given Salesforce and a phone. That was it. That was my day one trading. It was call these people. Oh, by the way, here's one page out what our product does. Our product, that product was 10 gigabit ethernet switches. And I had a degree in political science and opera. I had no clue what the heck that was. And they had me calling heads of network engineering of Fortune 500 companies. How I did not alienate half of them, I do not know. Right? So I think sales leaders are a little more stuck in that's how I did it. Therefore, that's how it must be marketing leaders have been forced to evolve. I think a little bit more. They understand how technology is used. They understand how branding works. They understand the power of social media in general a bit more. So they can understand, again, that I think a better long-term strategy than maybe a head of sales can who might be a little bit more stuck in, well, this is how I did it. So this is how everyone should do it. It's like, great, that worked 10 years ago. Um, it doesn't necessarily work anymore. And then when things go wrong, they're not as well equipped to troubleshoot and get creative. That's not super, always. super interesting. No, not it's always. so it's so interesting. I actually, um, I, yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. I think um, I think that can be the default position of um, of old sales leaders. I totally, totally, totally agree. And, and I'll, I'll um, throw one more thing in there too. It gets that issue is compounded depending on which VCs they're working with and how many mm. they're working with. Um, mm. There are a lot of VCs that push those tactics very heavily onto their companies. Um, and those VCs are the ones who are not seeing the returns that they want on those companies. And I'm sitting here laughing. It's still yeah. Yeah, I, it's so interesting to me. The one one thing that we're really, I'm I'm really big on at the moment. I, I've, I've, I've written about it in the past is like, um, we really dropped the like um, call KPI, kind of. I mean, like, obviously, you know, you've got to turn up to work and make some calls. Like, that's that's an expectation. But and the and and a lot of that goes with the person that's making the most dials isn't generating the most pipeline for us. No, the person um, who's making the most so, dials has people not picking up. Yeah. And they're making dials potentially just for the sake of making dials. Yep. So, um, so yeah, I'm in, I'm in strong agreement and you know, there's a balance. It's not binary, but it's, um, but you know, like 
uh, I think the balance has shifted, and 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 I agree that that, that potentially companies are hurting as a result from not um, understanding where this this new balance is. Um, Ashley, we're pretty much at time. Um, but one question that is super important to us and, and how we're fish- finishing all of these at the moment um, is all around 2024. I know, I can't believe it's 2024 already. Um, so that question is, um, what should sales in 24 start doing, um, continue doing, and stop doing? Ah, I love start, stop, continue. Okay. Um, this is not new, but I'm going to put it as start because people are not doing it at the level that I think they should be. Start leveraging video, especially once you've initially made contact. Um, video is incredibly powerful and you can do it over multiple platforms. So LinkedIn, email, lots of different ways you can use it. So that's a start. Um, continue. Continue experimenting with AI and playing with different places. You might be able to integrate it into your process. And I do encourage it to think about it as playing. If you think about it as experimentation stuff, it puts too much pressure on it. Just continue playing with AI and figuring out what makes sense for you. Bluntly, stop tolerating employers that don't treat you well. We've seen a lot of that starting to happen in 2023. I think that needs to continue happening in 2024. And I think more people need to be honest about why they're leaving the jobs that they're leaving. Um, I understand the economy is not always great. No one likes being unemployed and looking for jobs is crazy, but life is too short to stay at a job that does not respect you, respect the skill involved in sales, respect the humanity and the stress that it takes to put yourself out there on every single call and be yourself because that is how people are going to connect with you and build those relationships. So stop tolerating employers that don't understand that. And the only way they're going to learn is by you telling them when you leave exactly why you're leaving. Couldn't agree more. Exit interviews. And for companies, do exit interviews and listen to to, to what they say. Well, even if they don't do an exit interview, send an email to the CEO. This is why I left. Heads up. Good yeah. luck. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Um, all right, Ashley, thank you so much. Um, super, super insightful. Um, what um, If people want more from you, uh, where do they find you? Sure. You can find me at othersideofsales.com. You can also go to find me on LinkedIn, A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H, early. It's a LinkedIn slash in slash Ashley Early. Um, also follow, make sure you check out Across the Pond and Over the Rainbow on LinkedIn. I'm sure that will be linked in this de- description for the episode as well. Every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for everybody that's tuning in. Um, we'll see you next time.